Anyway, without further ado, but not uh, going immediately into the program, but we will in just a moment. Let me introduce Dave Emery, who's here with me. Hello, how you doing? All right. And uh, as I said before, I will caution you one more time. We are going to be dealing out a lot of information tonight. This is an archive show. The whole concept of the show is archival, that we are trying to get out information in blocks that we have previously had to refer to in passing or treat with in, in small segments only and uh, trying to give people a basis to uh, go along with us on some of the other stuff that we're doing that's more current. So, once again, please, please, for your own peace of mind, if nothing else, uh, do get out your tape recorder or get out a, you know, a tape, throw it on, and tape this. And also, then, if you do have to get up, as undoubtedly some of you will in the next four hours, although we will take a few breaks, um, this will give you a, uh, a, a, the possibility of doing that without, in fact, feeling like you're... Uh, you're cheating yourself out of something, okay? Uh, all right, good. Remember that uh, <clears throat> we are going to be going all the way up to 11 with uh, the presentation of information since our phones are not in working order right now. So uh, have enough oxide on hand to tape clear up till 11 o'clock so that you don't uh, get three-fourths or four-fifths or whatever the broadcast and then have it uh, drop right off. Because this whole... Uh, well, you could look on these shows, these Radio Free America shows, as a raft to help you sort of float down the rapids of uh, the other KFJC news and public affairs programming, specifically uh, One Step Beyond, Hard Rain, and Mae Russell. Indeed. And once again, just to mention that there, we are not going to be answering phone calls tonight. So um, if there's something you want clarified uh, or something that you want to ask about or a point that you want to make, hold on, hold on to it. We will be doing a second part to this broadcast next month. We will be continuing uh, from the point, more or less, where we leave off tonight next month. And at, during that broadcast, we will be having phones. So I realize it's a long time to wait, but if you write it down or, you know, if you tattoo it on the inside, Side of your arm or something, you should probably remember it when the time comes. Okay, now for those of you who have just tuned in and were not uh, have not been listening to the other shows or did not hear the promos, uh, tonight's Radio Free America archive show is entitled "Looking Back from 1984: The Hidden History of the Cold War," and we are in fact going to be talking about things mostly pertaining to the beginning of the Cold War and the antecedents of the Cold War, and we will deal with the events and time of the Cold War in a little more depth. Uh, during the next show. Now, let me make you one quick disclaimer here before we jump into the body of things, and then I'll let Dave uh, comment however he sees fit on that, which is, obviously, in four hours tonight and for four hours in May, we are not going to be able to cover the entire Cold War, and equally obviously, there are things um, that are going to be important parts of the events that we describe that we are not going to have a chance to deal with, and certainly a lot of them are going to deal with the, the conflict between West and East. Uh, we are not excluding them because of trying to favor East over West or anything of that nature. Um, however, we do feel that people probably have had more chance to be exposed to the reasons why the Soviet Union is such a bunch of bad guys, um, and in this day and age, with things going on the way they are, um, perhaps have not had as much chance as they should to understand some of the reasons why situations worked out the way they did, besides just the Berlin blockade and things of that nature. So once again, obviously, we cannot cover everything. There are other crucial historical factors that you will have to discover for yourself. Uh, we are not ignoring them. We are just limiting in terms of what our focus is. What we're going to be basically doing is highlighting some of the aspects of 
the long struggle or confrontation between the United States and uh, Britain, France, and the other nations that comprised the Western Allies during World War II and the Soviet Union. Uh, this struggle has been going on since uh, the Soviet Union as a nation came into being. And uh, as uh, the Nipper indicated to you, we certainly in the space allotted to us here, or even considerably more, could not hope to uh, cover the whole story, and uh, we'd probably only make fools of ourselves in attempting to do that. So what we're going to be doing is highlighting some of the aspects that you might not be familiar with, and uh, certainly the Cold War is something which could engulf all of us at any time, in the sense that it uh, could end all of our lives, it could render all of our life's work in vain, it, it could render it vain. And if we're ever going to get uh, control over the events that are overtaking the world right now, and if we're ever going to avoid becoming, uh, as we appear to be right now, the last generation of human beings on the Earth, the Cold War is something we're all going to have to come to understand. And it's uh, our hope uh, that the program tonight will contribute at least in a, in a small way to your understanding of that and to your ability to correct it, hopefully at some time in the future. All right, so tying together what Dave said, and in fact, also kicking off the show at the same time, uh, let me stress, and as I, as I again remind you that you probably will want to turn your tape recorders on, that what we are doing here is attempting to, uh, in essence, in some ways, be voices for people who can no longer speak for themselves. Many of the authors of these books that we will be quoting from tonight um, are not around. Uh, some of the ones who are around have been fairly effectively ignored, and even some very well-known people uh, who try and tell the truth about things often uh, become ignored when their, their words go against the status quo. So we are, in effect, trying to bridge that gap, and we are trying to help make history uh, a little more plain or at least a little more uh, amenable to solution. And to kind of kick that off and to give you an idea of how we feel about this, I'd like to read you first a brief excerpt from the book 1984, which, of course, is very topical this year, um, by George Orwell. And uh, this portion of the book actually is taking place in April of 1984, as Orwell first envisaged it, and uh, envisioned it, and this is uh, not uh, too far from where we are right at this moment, in fact, April of 1984. So, let me just start. The party said that Oceania had never been in alliance with Eurasia. He, Winston Smith, who is the narrator, by the way, knew that Oceania had been in alliance with Eurasia as short a time as four years ago. But where did that knowledge exist? Only in his own consciousness, which, in any case, must soon be annihilated. And if all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the past, ran the party slogan, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. And yet the past, though of its nature alterable, never had been altered. Whatever was true, was true, from everlasting to everlasting. It was quite simple. All that was needed was an unending, unending series of victories over your own memory. Reality control, they called it. In newspeak, doublethink. All righty, now... Keep that passage from Orwell in mind, and of course, 1984, at least uh, at the time it was written, was fiction. Now, we're going to read you something here which is not fiction, and uh, 
Well, it's, it, uh, it's similar in certain respects to the very cynical view of uh, human awareness that's portrayed in 1984, only what I'm going to be reading you now is not a passage from a work of fiction, but this is a passage from Mein Kampf, Hitler's, Adolf Hitler's autobiography. And specifically here, we're going to be reading a section from the 1935 German language edition of Mein Kampf. Now, this uh, small section of Mein Kampf is reprinted in a book that we're going to be using uh, several times during the course of the broadcast this evening. That book is called Facts and Fascism. The book was authored by a man named George Seldes, S-E-L-D-E-S, one of a number of, at the time, very well-known anti-fascist writers and social reformers who uh, were whose work essentially was eclipsed during the McCarthy period, and we're going to talk about that tonight. Those of you who saw the movie Reds would have seen George Seldes uh, as one of the little cut-in figures who commented on uh, the uh, turn, turns of events uh, in the history uh, during the Bolshevik Revolution and immediately following the First World War. Now, uh, Seldes' Facts and Fascism was published in hardcover by In Fact Incorporated and copyrighted 1943. And in that book, we have the following quote from the 1935 German-language edition of Mein Kampf. Hitler here is talking about lying. He writes as follows. The size of the lie is a definite factor in causing it to be believed, because the vast masses of a nation are in the depths of their hearts more easily deceived than they are consciously and intentionally bad. The primitive simplicity of their minds renders them more easy victims of a big lie than a small one, because they themselves often tell little lies, but would be ashamed to tell big ones. Such a form of lying would never enter their heads. They would never credit others with the possibility of such great impudence as the complete reversal of facts. And what we'd like you to consider throughout the course of the broadcast, basically, is the extent to which our world has, at least our, our perception, uh, Americans' perception of political reality has been shaped along the basic lines of the citizens of Oceania in 1984 or along the basic lines of the citizens of Nazi Germany, who in essence were handed a worldview which was a complete and total lie. And what we're asking you to consider this evening and uh, during the second part of the broadcast, and not necessarily to conclude that it is a complete reversal of the facts, but to consider the extent to which the version of history that we've all grown accustomed to is indeed a complete reversal of the facts. Okay, now, before we go on to the next section, we're going to start to talk about some specifics. Um, we we're going to start basically back at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. We aren't going to go into that in much depth. Any library book um, and Ten Days That Shook the World is a, is a is one that you can go to to find out some of the things going on in Russia at that time by John Reed, of course, which the movie Reds was based on. Um, there are several sources on that. However, the thing that is important to realize is that though the Bolsheviks had taken over the uh, the government, the governmental reins of Russia, and Russia had withdrawn from World War I, um, despite the fact that Russia was uh, essentially starving, uh, war-battered, the government was in a wreckage, the infrastructure was in a wreckage, nonetheless, by the mere fact of the Bolsheviks having come to power, they had engendered a powerful hatred and fear in the rest of the Western world, um, specifically in the governments of France, England, uh, and the United States, most especially, especially for our purposes to talk about tonight.
So, at that time, as early as 1919, there was a war of interventionism going on, harrying of the Russian borders, actual attacks into Russian territory, uh, featuring many of the prominent governments of the Western world and some of the Eastern European governments of that time, such as Poland, which we're going to talk about a bit more in a moment, and also um, the other nations I've mentioned, France, England, uh, and a total, total of uh, 14 nations, uh, Japan, all of the nations who uh, were contemplating building an empire took a look at the now-defunct Russian empire and said, ah, let's, let's carve a piece of that for themselves. Plus, of course, when the Bolsheviks came to power for the first time, there was a nation on the face of the earth that was being run in accordance with Marxist principles. Previously, that had simply been an abstract social philosophy. It, uh, I think, would not be an exaggeration to say that when the first Marxist country appeared on the face of the earth, it absolutely terrified uh, a great many of the uh, leading industrialists and financiers in Western society. Yes, and who had, all, who had already been in a, in a state of high dudgeon just over the existence of groups of Marxist, Leninists, and socialists within their own countries trying to affect political change, let alone an entire nation and one the size of Russia. All right, so we have this war of intervention starting, several countries essentially uh, in undeclared war on the Soviet Union at a time when it was probably least able, a, least able to defend itself, we might similarly, and this, this, this uh, comparison will come up again and again throughout the show tonight for those of you who are following the current news, we might look at the current situation in Central America, um, not only what's going on in Nicaragua at this moment, but what went on in Grenada just a, a few short uh, months back, where essentially another small group of countries in the area called on the United States to come in and overthrow Grenada because they did not feel uh, comfortable with Grenada, um, this in contravention of, of a law that was in force at that time. We see the same thing going on right now. The United States desperately casting about for some kind of reason why they can, um, with, with good conscience, uh, intervene and in effect declare a sort of undeclared war on Nicaragua, which they're having real problems with right now, as those of you who've been following the news, especially in the last two days, are aware. It's also worth noting that the intervention in the Russian Civil War immediately following World War I was very similar in another respect to the Nicaraguan conflict currently raging in Central America in the sense that uh, the interventionist nations in the Russian Civil War, the 14 nations who, without a declaration of war, invaded Russia, were working very closely with the newly overthrown czarist elements in uh, Russia who were attempting to beat back the Red Army and to restore the czar, or at least his uh, bureaucracy and his industrialists, his court, to power. And uh, the, many of the so-called white Russians, uh, they were nicknamed white Russians to contrast them with the, quote, reds, and also <clears throat> because the uh, czar's guards wore white coats. But the so-called white Russians, uh, many of them had already fled uh, Russia, uh, now newly the Soviet Union, but continued to uh, provide money and logistical support and advice and intelligence to those elements who were still inside Russia as well as the expeditionary forces of the 14 invading nations in the hopes that eventually the, the armies of those nations would provide their ticket back into power in Russia. And this is in many ways analogous to what's going on now in Nicaragua where the uh, Somoza regime was overthrown. That had been installed by the United States in Nicaragua in 1933. It was finally overthrown, and the much-hated Somocistas, many of them fled to the United States or to neighboring Central American countries where they are playing a leading role along with the United States in the uh, current attempt to destabilize the Sandinist government. 
Indeed. And uh, once again, bear this in mind, not because we're, we're saying this is an exact parallel, but because it is a pattern that we have seen many, many times throughout history. We are going to see this pattern cropping up again, and it's useful to begin to understand these types of patterns uh, if you want to be able to make a little more sense, perhaps, out of some of the things that are going on in the world today. Okay, now, <clears throat> speaking of patterns, there are two patterns here that uh, we're going to be into that I'm going to introduce to you here in the passage I'm about to read, and they're patterns that uh, we're going to be seeing throughout the course of this broadcast, and indeed I think uh, patterns which, at least to a certain extent, have held true throughout the course of the confrontation between the United States and the other uh, uh, so-called Western democracies in the Soviet Union. Now, the first of these uh, concerns the fact that Without a declaration of war, and of course uh, the U.S. Constitution specifically delegates war-making powers to Congress, without a, a declaration of war, the United States as a nation had nonetheless prosecuted a uh, war policy towards the Soviet Union. And this, this uh, is something that we have seen, of course we're seeing it now in Nicaragua, where in essence the United States is waging war on Nicaragua, yet without the requisite declaration of war. Uh, this is something that we that occurred throughout the course of the Cold War, and we're going to be looking at that in just a second. Also, it's worth noting that uh, the not only was the war undeclared, but that uh, much of the conflict is is accomplished or has been accomplished in a covert fashion. Uh, we are not actually, uh, except when journalists are able to penetrate the labyrinth of the national security establishment to some extent, we're not even necessarily informed of what steps have been taken by our government in this war, because much of it is done in covert fashion. Those are two patterns that I'm about to introduce to you in this passage here. There's another thing that you're going to be seeing as we present this information to you tonight, and which is uh, in many ways going to provide a, a pivotal theme for the broadcast tonight, and that is the consistent practice uh, on the part of the Allied nations in World War I and of the Allied nations in World War II as well of cooperating with a Germany, a German nation with which they are at war in order to frustrate the aims or perceived aims of the Soviet Union. With which they are allied or had been allied. Exactly. So that uh, basically, even though the United States, Britain, and France, and other nations have been at war with Germany, even while German, French, American, and British troops were locked in mortal combat, the leading politicians and diplomats of these nations have been willing to play ball in certain respects in order to uh, achieve certain mutual aims or perceived mutual aims with regard to the Soviet Union. Now, keep all those themes in mind, the notion of undeclared war, um, the notion of covert war, and the pattern of cooperation between wartime opponents, between Germany and wartime opponents, uh, in order to accomplish, uh, accomplish certain mutual goals with respect to the uh, conquering or containing of the Soviet Union. Now, the information that I'm about to read you comes from a book called The Great Conspiracy, subtitled The Secret War Against Soviet Russia. This book was copyrighted in 1946. It was authored by two men, Michael Sayers, S-A-Y-E-R-S, and Albert E. Kahn, last name K-A-H-N. As I said, copyrighted 1946 by Little Brown Books, who published it in hardcover. Uh, in the second part of this broadcast, we're going to uh, provide you some interesting information concerning some soft covers, some paperback editions of this very same book. So uh, do keep the, the name The Great Conspiracy in mind, because you'll be hearing it uh, again in the second broadcast as well as uh, in this one. Okay, now... Uh, the very first part uh, of the great conspiracy here that uh, 
Oh, by the way, Michael Sayers and Albert E. Kahn were two famous anti-fascist authors, both of whom uh, endured a lot of harassment, were censored during the McCarthy era. Uh, Kahn, Albert E. Kahn, was uh, a Bay Area resident and worked very closely with, among others, Albert Einstein, Hannah Arendt, and Thomas Mann in publishing an anti-fascist newsletter called The Hour. Okay, I'll give you a little background on the authors. At any rate, in 1946, they did publish Great Conspiracy, and the very first thing here is a, a speech made on the floor of the U.S. Senate by Senator Bora, last name B-O-R-A-H. And Bora observed as follows. On September 5th, 1919, Senator Bora arose in the Senate and declared, Mr. President, we are not at war with Russia. Congress has not declared war against the Russian government or the Russian people. The people of the United States do not desire to be at war with Russia, yet while we are not at war with Russia, while Congress has not declared war, we are carrying on war with the Russian people. We have an army in Russia. We are furnishing munitions and supplies to other armed forces in that country, and we are just as thoroughly engaged in conflict as though constitutional authority had been invoked. A declaration of war had been made, and the nation had been called to arms for that purpose. There is neither legal nor moral justification for sacrificing these lives. It is in violation of the plain principles of free government. The people of England and France shared the American people's disapproval of the war against Soviet Russia. Nevertheless, the undeclared war against Russia went on. Interrupting here, keep in mind that 14 countries currently had their, at the time uh, being discussed here, had their armies inside the Soviet Union. Continuing here with Sayers and Kahn's narrative. The armistice of November 1918 between the Allied and Central Powers contained in Article 12 a little publicized clause stipulating that German troops should remain as long as the Allies considered it expedient in whatever Russian territory they then occupied. Keep in mind that these are two supposed enemies. It was understood these troops were to be used against the Bolsheviks. In the Baltic provinces, however, the Kaiser's army swiftly disintegrated. The war-weary and mutinous German soldiers deserted in droves. Keep in mind these de deserting German soldiers, we're going to allude to them again in a few minutes. Faced with a rapidly growing Soviet movement in Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, the British High Command decided to concentrate its support upon white guard bands operating in the Baltic area. The man selected to head these bands and weld them into a single military unit was General Count Rüdiger von der Goltz of the German High Command. That man's uh, name is Rüdiger, R-U-D-I-G-E-R-V-O-N-D-E-R-G-O-L-T-Z. General von der Goltz led a German expeditionary corps against the Finnish Republic in the spring of 1918, shortly after that country had acquired its independence as a result of the revolution. Again, interrupting, take note of the fact that Finland had been part of the Russian Empire and then acquired its independence as a result of the uh, Russian Revolution. Poland did the same thing. Poland was also a part of uh, the old Russian Empire and acquired its uh, independence through the revolution. Continuing here. Von der Goltz had undertaken the Finnish campaign at the express request of Baron Karl Gustav von Mannerheim, M-A-N-N-E-R-H-E-I-M, -E a Swedish aristocrat and former officer in the Tsar's Imperial Horse Guard who headed the white forces in Finland. As commander of the White Guard Army in the Baltic area, von der Goltz now launched a campaign of terror to stamp out the Soviet movement in Latvia and Lithuania. His troops pillaged large sections of the land and carried out wholesale executions of civilians. 
the Latvian and Lithuanian people had little military equipment or organization with which to resist this savage onslaught. Before long, von der Goltz was virtual dictator of the two nations. The American Relief Administration, under the direction of Herbert Hoover, of course later President of the United States, the American Relief Administration, under the direction of Herbert Hoover, placed large food supplies at the disposal of the German general von der Goltz. These supplies were withheld from the starving Baltic peoples until their territory had been occupied by von der Goltz's white troops. The food was then distributed under the general's supervision. The Allies were soon confronted with something of a dilemma. With their aid, von der Goltz dominated the Baltic area, but he was still a German general, and consequently there was the danger that through his influence, Germany would seek to control the Baltic states. In June of 1919, the British decided to replace von der Goltz with the general more directly under their control. Sidney Riley's friend, the 58-year-old ex-Tsarist General Nicholas Yudenich, Y-U-D-E-N-I-T-C-H, was appointed commander-in-chief of the reorganized white forces. The British agreed to furnish the necessary military supplies to General Yudenich for a march on Petrograd. The first shipment of supplies pledged was complete equipment for 10,000 men, 15 million cartridges, 3,000 automatic rifles, and a number of tanks and airplanes. Representatives of Herbert Hoover's American Relief Administration promised to make food available to areas occupied by General Yudenich's troops. Major R.R. Powers, P.O.W.E.R.S., chief of the Estonian section of the Baltic Mission of the American Relief Administration, began making a careful survey to estimate the amount of food necessary to guarantee the seizure of Petrograd by General Yudenich's White Russian Army. On June 15, 1919, the Relief Administration's first shipment arrived when the U.S. Lake Charlottesville anchored in the harbor at Raval, carrying 2,400 tons of flour and towing a barge containing 147 tons of bacon. <clears throat> okay, so <clears throat> take note here of the fact that uh, this food aid, which had been requisitioned in the United States both by the United States government and also by uh, private uh, donation, was basically being used here as an element of war, as an article of war. It um, was being used as a weapon to put down the Red Armies to make things more difficult for the pro-Bolshevik forces uh, inside of the old Russian Empire, inside of the Soviet Union, and to feed and sustain the reactionary armies of General von der Goltz, who, of course, was a German general. So, uh, in essence, basically, <clears throat> what we see here... Uh, the American Relief Administration was, one could perhaps say, almost an intelligence front or a, a front for covert action against the Soviet Union. Uh, the establishment of a pattern which uh, holds to this day and which, as we mentioned, uh, we can still observe in Nicaragua. Worth noting also the Section 12 of the armistice signed between the United States, between the Western Allies and Germany, permitted the Germans to keep their troops in the Baltic states to fight against the Bolsheviks, even though this was a Germany which was now in a state of defeat and supposedly being disarmed. Now, a lot of times, here's a, there's, a, there's a crucial thing that often comes up when, when people discuss the Cold War, you know, in capital letters, the Cold War, and that's the, the assertion that the Cold War, at best or at worst, is sort of a chicken-and-the-egg kind of a thing. It's, uh, well, who's at fault? Well, they're bad. Maybe we did some bad things, too. But, you know, who's to know whose fault it was? What started it all off? Well, 
For those of you out there who are interested, I would just want to point out to you that regardless of what happened later on, at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, the, uh, the, Russians, uh, the Russians as a society and as a, a governmental power were in complete disarray. They had suffered a terrible, terrible defeat at the Battle of Tannenberg, at which their army had just been shattered by the German army. Um, they were in uh, internal revolt within themselves for a long time, and of course many people died in, in the struggle uh, between the, the, the red and the white forces within Russia, which was just beginning to die down at the end of World War I, um, and a variety of other things. So uh, basically the Russians were no threat to anybody. This is a key thing to keep in mind. The Russians were having trouble holding on to the, the, uh, even the internal territories of the empire that had been built under the Tsar. In fact, the Russians at that time, uh, the people, the peoples of the old Russian Empire were basically an underdeveloped nation. Russia was an extremely poor, illiterate nation, and uh, it, it, its citizens, or the, those who were left after the revolution, were almost all peasants. They were incredibly poor and beset in uh, all ways. Again, very similar to uh, the situation in Central America today, where the country is just trying to get itself together. Right. They were, the Russians were essentially the last uh, Europeanized nation out of the, the medieval age, out of the Middle Ages, and they weren't very far out of it. Anyway, so when you talk about you know chicken or the egg kinds of situations, well, whose fault was it? Well, bear in mind that at the time that the U.S. and uh, Britain and France and uh, Japan were among the most powerful nations in the world, Russia was a, uh, a broken nation, which was certainly not going to be exporting revolution anybody uh, under fire from all sides. This might at least answer some questions as to what set the pattern of the later Cold War. Um, anyway, going moving along on a similar topic here, we were talking, uh, Dave mentioned about Finland coming out of the original uh, Russian Empire and also mentioned that Poland, in fact, was part of the old Tsarist Empire that uh, utilized the opportunity to, to, uh, to break itself away during the, the revolution. Uh, the, the, the Bolsheviks basically deciding that discretion was the better part of valor, deciding that they couldn't continue to try and maintain everything. They were fighting for their lives. Anyway... Well, the Poles and the Polish army um, were one of the, the agents, one of the instruments used by the, the interventionists of the Western countries uh, to fight against the, the then brand new uh, Bolshevik or, or uh, Leninist regime, I guess, since Lenin wasn't, had just come to power. Anyway, we're reading another section here from Sayers and Khan's Great Conspiracy, and it goes as follows. In spite of the catastrophic reversals they had suffered, the Anglo-French interventionists launched two more offensives against Western Soviet Russia. In April 1920, demanding all the territory of the Western Ukraine and the occupation of the Russian town of Smolensk, the Poles attacked from the West. Generously equipped by the French and British with war materials and a $50 million loan from the United States, and we'll get back to that in a moment, the Poles drove into the Ukraine and occupied Kiev. Here they were halted and hurled back by the Red Army. With the Russian troops hot on their heels, the Poles retreated frantically. By August, the Red Army stood at the gates of Warsaw and Lvov. The Allied governments rushed fresh loans and supplies to the Poles. Marshal Foch, F-O-C-H, French Field Marshal Foch, who was at that time the head of the uh, French government, more or less, uh, hurriedly sent his chief of staff, General Maxime Weygand, to direct Polish operations. British tanks and planes were rushed to Warsaw. 
The Red Troops, commanded by General Tukashevsky and War Commissar Leon Trotsky, had dangerously overextended their lines of communications. Now they suffered the consequences, as the Polish counteroffensive drove them back along the entire front. The Soviet government, by the Peace of Riga, was forced to turn over to the Poles the western portions of Bielorussia and the Ukraine. Now, we're going to get, a bit, get back to Bielorussia, at least by inference, a little later on, but what I wanted to drop back on right now was they were talking about the $50 million loan the United States may, made to the Polish army that they, so that they could, in fact, uh, invade western Russia. And uh, there's a footnote here in the, the Sayers and Kahn book, and it uh, once again brings up the name of Herbert Hoover, a man who uh, we have come to know and love uh, as being one of the, uh, the key figures in American history uh, during the Depression. And the, the very little that, that was done during the Depression by Herbert Hoover's administration. However, Hoover, as we're going to find out in a moment, um, not only wasn't he crazy about poor people in America, he did not like poor people in Russia uh, even more. He was even more uh, unpleasant towards them, and especially when they were Bolsheviks. And the footnote says, Herbert Hoover placed millions of dollars worth of American Relief Administration supplies at the disposal of the Polish army. Now, he, he was not the president at this point. He was not elected president until, I believe, 1928. But um, he was head of the Relief Administration. On January 4, 1921, Senator James Reed of Missouri charged on the floor of the Senate that $40 million of the Congressional Relief Funds, quote, was spent to keep the Polish army in the field. Remember, this is an undeclared war. This is purely a decision on the part of Hoover and others in the government, but not a congressional uh, or a governmental decision. In addition, some $23 million raised by Hoover by popular subscription for aiding children in Central Europe was spent largely in Poland. Although the fund appeals published in the United States stated the money was to be equally divided among destitute Austrians, Armenians, and Poles. The great bulk of the money raised in the United States allegedly for European relief was used to support intervention against the Soviets. Hoover himself made this clear in his report to Congress in January 1921. The Congress had originally appropriated funds for relief primarily in, quote, Central Europe, but Hoover's report showed that almost all of the $94,938,417 accounted for was spent in territory immediately adjoining Russia, or in those sections of Russia which were under the control of the white Russian armies and the Allied interventionists. Now, note once again the fact that... Uh Herbert Hoover here basically is taking aid intended for humanitarian purposes, for peaceful purposes, and is for all intents and purposes using it as uh, a weapon of war. So again, uh, the American Food Relief Administration could be seen as sort of a, a covert action front. I just wanted to mention a rather a, a rather amusing coincidence because we were talking earlier. This just occurred to me. We were talking earlier about all the. Uh, all of the uh, the the uh, collisions or collusions the uh, 
conjunctions between things going on at this time and things going on now in Nicaragua. And you may recall that the reason that the Senate uh, preliminarily passed a bill just recently for uh, the continuation of covert aid to Nicaragua was because the Reagan administration attached it to a food relief bill for Africa. So Worth, worth uh, keeping in mind, and, and note also that in the second broadcast, uh, the second of the two-part uh, Looking Back from 1984 series, we're also going to see Herbert Hoover once again abusing uh, what was ostensibly a food relief mission and using it for reactionary political purposes. Now, Herbert Hoover was uh, a person who was, was obviously very influential in our own history and had a great deal to do uh, with America's foreign policy as well. And uh, as we've seen, that has not received nearly the, the notice that his domestic activities did. The question <clears throat> remains uh, perhaps why was Herbert Hoover so very much opposed to the new Bolshevik government in the Soviet Union? Well, of course, uh, the what one might refer to, certainly uh, a conservative person would refer to as the specter of Marxism, had long haunted uh, uh, the well-to-do and large industrialists and financiers who saw their uh, economic uh, their economic largesse being threatened by the doctrine of Marxist revolution. And certainly there was an intrinsic hatred of Bolshevism. Uh, it is difficult, perhaps impossible, to separate out the ideological hatred from uh, what might, and I say might, be perceived as the root of that ideological hatred, which is the threat of uh, relative economic privation, or certainly the loss of great economic privilege. Now, once again, I'm, we're going to go back to the book The Great Conspiracy here, and we're going to take a look at just uh, what Herbert Hoover had been doing in Russia before his uh, covert activities uh, as American Food Relief Administrator and using uh, that food basically to finance uh, armed intervention or to uh, nourish, I should, should say, armed intervention inside of the Soviet Union. Now back to Albert uh, Michael Sayers and Albert E. Kahn's The Great Conspiracy. The most notable American to identify himself with the anti-Soviet war was Herbert Hoover, the future president of the United States, who at that time was the American Food Administrator. A former mining engineer employed by British concerns prior to the First World War, Herbert Hoover had become a successful entrepreneur in the field of Russian oil wells and mines. The corrupt czarist regime swarmed with high officials and landowning aristocrats ready to barter their country's wealth and labor power in return for foreign bribes or a share in the spoils. Hoover had begun his speculation in Russian oil as far back as 1909 when the wells at Maikop were first opened. That's M-A-I-K-O-P. Within a year, he had floated and secured a major interest in no less than 11 Russian oil companies. They are the Maikop Neftayanoi Syndicate, the Maikop Shervansky Oil Company, the Maikop Apsheron Oil Company, the Maikop and General Petroleum Trust, Mycop Oil and Petroleum Products, Mycop Areas Oil Company, Mycop Valley Oil Company, Mycop Mutual Oil Company, Mycop Hydegensky Syndicate, Mycop New Producers Company, Amalgamated Mycop Oil Fields. By 1912, the former mining engineer was associated with the, with the famous British multimillionaire Leslie Urquhart, U-R-Q-U-H-A-R-T, in three new companies which had been set up to exploit timber and mineral concessions in the Urals and Siberia. Hoover and Urquhart then floated the Russo-Asiatic Corporation, 
and made a deal with two czarist banks whereby the corporation would handle all mining prospects in those areas. Russo-Asiatic shares rose from $16.25 a share in 1913 to $47.50 in 1914. That same year, the corporation obtained three new profitable concessions from the czarist regime, which comprised 2,500,000 acres of land, including vast timberlands and water power, estimated gold, copper, silver, and zinc reserves of 7,262,000 tons, 12 developed mines, two copper smelters, 20 sawmills, 250 miles of railroad, two, sh two steamships and 29 barges, blast furnaces, rolling mills, sulfuric acid plants, gold refineries, and huge coal reserves. The total value of these properties was estimated at one billion dollars. And uh, take note of the fact that that's one billion dollars in 1912. Our currency has inflated many, many, many times since. Continuing now with the Great Conspiracy. After the Bolshevik Revolution, all the concessions were abrogated and the mines confiscated by the Soviet government. A claim for $282 billion for damage to properties and loss of probable annual profits was filed with the British government the following year by Russo-Asiatic Consolidated, a new cartel which Hoover and his partners had formed to take over and protect their Russian interests. Bolshevism, said Herbert Hoover at the Paris Peace Conference, is worse than war, unquote. He was to remain one of the world's bitterest foes of the Soviet government for the rest of his life. It is a fact, whatever his personal motive may have been, that American food sustained the white armies in Russia and fed the stormtroops of the most reactionary regimes in Europe, which were engaged in suppressing the upsurge of democracy after the First World War. Thus, American relief became a weapon against the people's movements in Europe. The whole of, Ameri quote, the whole of American policy during the liquidation of the armistice was to contribute everything it could to prevent Europe from going Bolshevik or being overrun by their armies, Hoover later declared in a letter to Oswald Garrison Villard on August 17, 1921. That man's last name, V-I-L-L-A-R-D. His definition of Bolshevism, unquote, coincided with that of Foch, Pétain, Knox, Riley, and Tanaka. As Secretary of Commerce, as President of the United States, and subsequently, as a leader of the isolationist wing of the Republican Party, he fought untiringly to prevent the establishment of friendly commercial and diplomatic relations between America and America's most powerful ally against world fascism, the Soviet Union. And uh, in a footnote to the passage I just read you, Sayers and Kahn add the following. Until August of 1921, Herbert Hoover's activities as food relief administrator were directed toward giving direct aid to the white Russian armies in withholding all supplies from the Soviets. Hundreds of thousands starved in Soviet territory. When finally Hoover was compelled to bow to American public pressure and send some food to the Soviets, he continued, according to a statement by a Near East relief official in the New York World in April of 1922, to, quote, interfere with the collection of funds for famine-stricken Russia, unquote. In February of that year, when Hoover was Secretary of Commerce, the New York Globe made this editorial comment, quote, Bureaucrats centered throughout the Department of Justice, the Department of State, and the Department of Commerce 
for purposes of publicity, are carrying on a private war with the Bolshevist government. Washington propaganda has grown to menacing proportions. Messrs. Hughes and Hoover and Doherty will do well to clean their house before public irritation reaches too high a point. The American people will not long endure a presumptuous bureaucracy which, for its own wretched purposes, is willing to let millions of innocent people die. Well, several things worth uh, commenting on in that passage. First of all, note the pattern of, uh, as uh, Sayers and Khan put it, the uh, czarist nobles bartering away their country's wealth and labor power in exchange for a share of the spoils in a commission. Now, this also is a pattern that uh, has held uh, in underdeveloped countries today. Many countries in the third world are totalitarian regimes, they're dictatorships in which a small oligarchy basically holds power through force of arms, through terror, in cooperation with or in partnership with foreign industrial interests who are cooperating with them to develop that country's mineral wealth. And uh, I guess one, it, it's not unfair to perhaps say exploit not only that mineral wealth, but the people uh, who are employed in their factories and mines. And uh, so this pattern of an underdeveloped nation's aristocracy or more privileged classes or industrialists combining with foreign entrepreneurs to basically uh, sort of sew up a country is something which holds through uh, to this day and which, uh, again, not to uh, stra maybe strain the point, but this is a pattern that we see in Central America today. Well, it, uh, I, I think, in fact, the point not only could bear some straining, I think the, the point can bear a little pounding because we have seen this so repetitively. And uh, the roots of it stretch back, and it's it's sort of the Jekyll Hyde uh, part of the American persona, if I can uh, get a little literary on you. On one side, you have the sort of bright, shining face of, you know, America traveling, as Willie Loman would say, on a smile and a shoeshine and able to sell things all over the world, American know-how, um, you know, we know how to get the job done, can do that whole sort of... Uh, public persona of America as a country that has the technology, has the knowledge, has the, the gumption and the stick to -itiveness. Well, the other side of that goes way back in America's history to when she was just first beginning to feel her oats as a power, clean back into the middle of the 19th century um, to such things as uh, uh, Admiral um, Dewey forcibly opening up the... Uh, the uh, the Japanese trade by literally um, Admiral Perry. Oh, Admiral Perry. I'm sorry. Dewey was in the Philippines. Dewey opened up the Philippines and Cuba. Uh, yeah, Perry opened right. up Japan. Okay, but Perry sailing into Japan with a uh, an armada of gunships and literally telling the Japanese, either you let us trade in your country or we'll blow you to ribbons because we're tired of you folks not accepting our our trade. Because of course Japan had been isolated for about 150 years after their earlier experience with Western culture, which they didn't find too too appetizing. Anyway, this goes on through the whole last half of the 19th century. People like uh, Albert Beveridge, Senator Albert Beveridge, who literally said that uh, America had a God-given right to, to take over any territory it could reach um, and that nothing should stand in the way of America's westward expansion. Things of this sort, uh, the Philippines, it goes on and on. And the essential, the bottom line is that American business interests, which for most of America's history have in fact been the government, they were the people who initiated the revolution, that freed America, and they have been America's leading citizens.
citizens and movers and shakers have said for about 200 years now that anywhere that our trade is denied and our ability to make a buck is denied to us, well, we have the right, God-given, to go in and rearrange things um, to our way of looking at things. Essentially, might makes right and money makes might. And